This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios here in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Here to talk, of course, about the coronavirus pandemic. The solution to all these testing issues could be in your mouth. There is now a saliva-based coronavirus testing kit that you can do at uh, workplaces or schools. A scientist from Yale thinks uh, this could be a game changer, so we will talk to her. I thought you were referring to chewing gum. I had that in my mouth, but that's not the game changer. Can you imagine if, like, the uh, double mint was the (laughs) cure? (laughs) We should be so lucky. When school starts, parents usually get a bit of a break. The kids are out of the house for most of the day, but it's different now as millions of parents will have to take time away from their work at home, office or elsewhere to make sure their kids are focusing on schoolwork when they begin remote learning again. So we will look into how parents will navigate what could be a stressful next few months for them and their kids. Once more and more schools do reopen, the next big question will be how do we get kids there safely? College football either canceled or postponed throughout much of the country, especially here out in the West. But it's not just the players and coaches who are impacted. There are business consequences as well. Now, let's talk about saliva again in the name of science, though. (laughs) Ann Wiley is an epidemiology research scientist at the Yale School of Medicine, one of the developers of the new testing kit Saliva Direct. Ann, tell us what Saliva Direct is. Well, it kind of says what it is. So um, first of all, the important thing is that we're taking a saliva sample. Um, I think anyone who's had a swab out there, that might be good news to them, especially if we're now moving into a realm of more frequent testing as we want to have screenings such as schools. Giving a saliva sample, I think, is um, a much better prospect than having a swab every couple of days. All right. So, yeah, definitely easier because uh, we've seen the images of, of the especially the first round of swabs. So I guess, it, you know, sometimes they can do oral swabs now, but it's uh, the no swab. Nobody likes how accurate is this. Uh, so it's easier. Yes. But uh, in terms of accuracy, if we were to roll this out, what does it look like? Things are looking good. So for any of the technical folks out there, our lower limit of detection is 6 to 12 virus RNA copies per microliter. What that means is it's just very similar to a lot of the other PCR-based tests out there. So it has a sensitivity of over 90% in hospitalized patients and about 88 to 90% in asymptomatic individuals, so being the healthy people that you'll just find in the community. So is it detecting the actual viral particles or is it detecting like the antigen tests do the protein attached to the virus? What is it actually looking for? It is looking for that viral RNA. And what is the hope here? What could this be used for? Is this like surveillance testing? You use it for a big business or you use it for getting us back into classrooms if we're going to go that route? If you do scale it up all the way, what's the idea? I think all of the above. Um, The EUA that we've received from the FDA has been described as the most unique one to date. Um, And the idea that actually what we've done is we've also just developed a method. So just to like really um, point out, this is not a test kit that we've developed. It's not something like, you know, you can't just get online and order one of these out to you now. What we've developed is more the method or, you know, the recipe per se that a lab can take it can set it up locally, and it can start running this test locally to hopefully, indeed, meet the demands of local schools, local businesses, things like that. Okay, so so walk us through briefly how somebody would actually then take advantage of this, this test. Uh, how would that work? They would 
they would get something at home? Where would they get it from? And, and just walk us through what actually happens. So, um, yeah, I think quite similar to so very similar to sort of the, some of the testing options that we've been seeing so far. So whether that is sort of some of these drive-through settings that we've seen, some of the situations where a doctor would order, order a test for you and have a tube provided for you. Um, again, in the schools and workplaces, you know, the idea if you've got a little booth where someone can come, give a saliva sample, drop it off, and then that sample gets sent off for testing, those are sort of the um, situations that we might find this um, being used in. What's the turnaround time on it? So it is, it's faster than the traditional way. It's not one of these rapid tests that people are talking about, but it's faster than the um, methods that are in place at the moment. So we can get results for about 92 samples in about two to three hours. So, you know, this, this is going to vary by the time it gets to a lab and how many of the lab is processing, but we are hoping for same-day results, if not 24 hours. You know, we need these fast test results to be able to act upon them. So you have the emergency approval for this methodology from the FDA. Uh, what happens now? How soon will this technology be technology be available to the general public? We're going to have one lab up and running by the end of the week. Obviously, this is not an answer to the massive testing needs out there. But what I mean is that this is easy to implement. It's easy to get up and running. These labs need to contact us. Um, so they need to be a clear lab, a clear diagnostic testing lab in the community. They'll contact us. We can issue them um, a right to use this method. It's a free license. Um, they're not paying us for anything. It's just so that we can maintain some oversight and who's using the method. And then these local labs can start offering testing. So, yeah, within the next four to eight weeks, if not even sooner. Ann Wiley, epidemiology research scientist at Yale School of Medicine on the team of developers of uh, Saliva Direct. Many schools across the country are starting up again with students at home learning remotely. It's how they finish the last school year, so the kids and parents have, you know, some experience. But that doesn't mean it's not stressful for um, everybody, students, parents, teachers, administrators. Leah Dara is vice president of the California State PTA Education Commission, herself a parent of a high schooler. Beth Meyerhoff is a parent of a college student and a high school student in Southern California. So, Leah, let's start with you. Do you expect things to be easier this go-around, or are you worried? Well, I think last uh, March it was kind of an abrupt change based on the pandemic situation. So everyone had to change without a lot of time. I'm hoping this year with the summer to prepare and knowing so many teachers, learned a lot in the, in the spring, that this will be better. Beth, uh, you have, as we said, uh, you're the parent of a college student and a high school student. Are, are they both, I presume, going to be learning from home? My high school student will be um, learning, going to distance learning, and my college student is going to, uh, going to Ohio, which is actually opening for um, some virtual learning as well as some in-class learning. Okay, so for the high school student, what has been communicated so far about what the school day is going to look like, and how do you feel about it? Our district's done a good job about uh, providing information about what the day will look like, as well as making sure that students have access to the internet and computers or tablets to facilitate the distance learning, um, as well as getting input from parents about what kind of timing would work to work for families with multiple children and adults working from home. And um, once the tech issue is resolved, then it's trying to figure out how students are going to regularly participate in distance learning and making sure that that communication and that connectivity is, is meaningful 
for all students. Leah, how long can you keep this up for? How long can your kid keep this up for if this goes on for quite some time? Depends on the day. Definitely <laughs> there are days where we wish that we were right back in school. Um, but, you know, we're very lucky. We have good internet connection. We have devices at our home. And my daughter is going into the 11th grade, so she's a fairly independent learner. But she misses her friends, and I miss her being with her friends. Have you had to be on her about making sure, or had you had to be on her about making sure she was tuned into the classes and, you know, not on her phone, anything like that? You said she's fairly independent, but, I mean, mom's got to look over the shoulder. Sure, for sure. Um, It's been a balance, um, me learning to trust her or her doing a good job. But in the course of the beginning, uh, last spring, there were some mix-ups about what was due when because different teachers using different platforms. Um, but I, I believe this is some training wheel steps for her to get ready for college. So she's she's on her path, uh, but she's got a mom who knows what to look for. Uh, Beth, let me ask you, and then Leah, if you want to chime in, uh, go ahead. Uh, I'm wondering whether you have concerns. I'm sure you do, but, but what those concerns are in terms of the social development of your kids. Because high school is, a, is as you know, it's kind of a critical age when, when kids kind of they kind of learn a lot about being independent. They learn a lot about social interactions. They do maybe some things that they shouldn't do and other things that they, they should do. We I, all make yeah, mistakes. Yeah, I remember my high school days. <laughs> we can't talk about that. Uh, do you do you guys worry that this at-home learning is depriving them of the ability to develop those very important social skills? Well, I think it's clear that there are some experiences that are not going to be able to be replicated during distance learning. And trying to make sure that students are still engaged and interacting is, is going to be really important. Um, my daughter has a student leader who's connecting with incoming freshmen to help ease their transition, and she's working on ideas for virtual events. So trying to replicate that sense of community outside of the regular school day, that is so important for students. Leah, what, what do you think? Well, definitely there were periods of time in the spring where my daughter was pretty um, – I'm temporarily depressed, missing her friends, missing those moments of not being under um, foot of mom and dad and, you know, um, just really wanting more freedom and more uh, regular high school experiences. So we're trying to balance that. Um, Obviously, with the current situation, our county still has um, a fairly – COVID isn't under control in our county, so we're trying to, you know, limit the uh, person in-person contact, but um, we're trying to use – encourage her to use her social media safely, texting, FaceTime, and some social distance visits. Leah Dara, Beth Meyeroff, uh, best of luck to you both as uh, we move through the next few months of this. And uh, thanks for joining us, and, and best of luck to the kids. Some parents face different challenges than others. What about those who are also teachers? How do they handle making sure their own kids are learning while getting their students focused. Heather Ippolito is a teacher who is married to another teacher and the parent of a middle school student. And Jessica Barker is a parent of four K-12 through age students, four of them. Jessica, one is hard enough. What are you going to do? Well, it's, um, it's been a challenge already. It was definitely a challenge in the spring, and it continues to be a challenge as well this fall. Um, it's particularly challenging on those days, which actually is every day of the week, um, all four of our kids have Zoom meetings at the exact same time starting at 10 a.m. Um, and it's a little hard to find space in our relatively small home for them to get a quiet place to work. Um, and one of our children is um, has severe autism, and he needs hands-on assistance during that time. So that's another added challenge to the mix there. 
Heather, uh, growing up, you would have been my nightmare having having two parents were both <laughs> teachers. I would have, that would have freaked me out totally. Uh, but uh, now you're in the situation. Is it better, do you think, for your kid that you both you and your husband are both teachers? Does that help? Do you think with this entire at at home learning process? Well, that would be a great question to ask her. Um, I think it's nice that we're uh, we're able to help if she needs extra assistance. Um, my husband is also very tech savvy, so he's been able to help troubleshoot when she's had difficulty with her Zoom or accessing things on her um, Google Classroom. But, um, you know, I think there could be advantages, but you, if you asked her, she might say it's also been a little stressful because we are definitely on top of her all the time, making sure she's completing all of her classwork. So, you know, we, we were going to talk more about this from the parent perspective and what it's like to juggle all this at home. But what was it like to be in a situation and, and to have your husband going into it now, too, um, with learning how to do the distance learning from the other end of that screen? Well, uh, you know, my husband, it's interesting because he said that this feels like his first year teaching all over again. And he's been in the classroom for over 20 years. So um, everything is different. Class management is different. How you deliver your curriculum is different. Um, it, it was different in the spring, too. That that wasn't the kind of distance learning that they're doing now. Um, now the school district, school district is expecting the teachers to be on live with the kids, um, whereas back in the spring, a lot of teachers did pre-recorded lessons or no lessons at all, and they just pushed out assignments. So um, it's definitely been a very steep learning curve for all the teachers in our life. Jessica, and to remind our listeners, you, you're the parent of four uh, K through 12 aged uh, students. Um, do you get concerned about their not just scholastic achievement, but their mental health? Yeah, for sure. And I, I know many parents are worried about that. And it's been particularly challenging for my oldest daughter, who's um, starting high school, to not be able to go out and socialize with her friends, not to be able to see friends at school. Um, I think that's been very challenging, especially going into a high school environment, to not have um, access to other kids. Um, I, I am concerned about that. And I, I hope that things change soon, because long term, I don't think this is healthy for our kids to be so isolated. What about you? How are you doing? I mean, you mentioned it's hard to get the kids all spaced out in the house, and then you have the special needs child. I mean, how do you manage, or how will you manage? Uh, Are you worried? Because <laughs> like well, now the I impending mean, deadline is coming up, right? Yeah, it's a little tricky. I'm working from home. Um, my husband um, is actually a stay-at-home parent, um, so he's handling a lot of it. But I, he can't handle all four kids on his own. So I find myself frequently having to take breaks from work to go and assist, especially when there are technical issues. Um, and it's been a real juggling act, I have to say. It's only day three, and we, <laughs> we've already had some significant challenges. There were some significant tech challenges on the first day. Um, it's, it's not easy, uh, I'll tell you that. And I'm a little concerned, not a little, a lot concerned, particularly about my student who does have um, severe special needs and whether or not he's actually going to be able to progress in the current system with distance learning. Jessica, Heather, thanks so much for talking to us. And uh, yes, good luck as we move through this uh, next semester. Getting kids back into the classroom is one thing. Another thing is to get them to campus safely. Districts will have to figure out how to make sure buses don't become super spreaders. KYW's Matt Leon talked to Tim Amon and Jim Regan, co-managers of a task force in charge with handling school transportation and the challenges with that. 
Tim, we'll start with you. How concerned as we get ready to go back to school in the fall should parents be about uh, putting a, their kid on a school bus in the middle of a pandemic? My sense is that they shouldn't be any more concerned about putting them on the bus as they are about sending them to school. I think that transportation folks are doing everything they can to coordinate with education staff and public health officials and their state and national associations to gather as much information on what the right cleaning protocols are, on what the right practices are for managing the the, board, the onboarding and the offloading of students and incorporating things like physical distancing and masks and, and those kinds of, of operational and equipment-related details that are designed to do what they can to protect the health and safety of kids in the same way that they're trying to do it in the classroom. Jim, what are some of the, the things you're hearing as far as conversations with parents, school districts, uh, as far as the way they're approaching this concern, stuff like that? The guideline is what you do at home and what you do in your community uh, it just gets extended into the school environment. So I think uh, schools that are starting uh, this late uh, the kids are used to wearing masks, so they wear the mask to the bus stop. You, know, you apply social distancing in the food store or when you go out, you have to apply social distancing uh, at a bus stop. You know, the schools are trying to optimize uh, social distancing on buses, but I think because of some financial concerns, it's not going to be a perfect situation on a school bus, but if they attempt to uh, limit capacity to 50% and the kids wear masks, I think they'll be okay. But I know that all the transportation departments, uh, in terms of disinfecting and cleaning, conforming to the guidelines as much as they can, will be the norm. Have you guys heard a lot from bus drivers, concerns that, that they have of uh, how everything's being handled, stuff like that? Uh, I think, yes. <laughs> uh, and because when we look at uh, you know, the health and safety, uh, it includes everybody. It includes staff. It includes drivers, bus monitors, as well as the students. What I've seen happening in districts, a lot of districts have been out in front um, and they've communicated what their safety program for drivers you know, is going to be. Because older drivers who are high risk uh, due to COVID, you know, they may not come back. Um, same thing with teachers, uh, the age factor. So a lot of districts are really you know, doing an outreach program to indicate what their uh, pandemic program is and their safety program is just to help retain drivers. I think if there's a, a, a subset of concerns, it's with the handling of special needs students where you know, additional PPE, uh, where you're actually going to have a physical contact with a special needs student or a wheelchair student. Those are positions um, that if you had an elderly driver, you might want to move them to a different position just because of the risk of, uh, of, of working with children that closely uh, against their age factor. So a lot of districts are doing that kind of age versus risk assessment when they look at their role uh, within transportation. Saturdays this upcoming fall on the West Coast and Midwest just won't be the same without the pageantry of college football. Two of the country's biggest conferences, the Big Ten and Pacific 12, 
postponing their schedules. It will create a ripple effect, as this just doesn't impact the players, but uh, coaches and fans, also sportswear companies, they depend on college football. Ken Perkins is a research analyst at Retail Metrics, and he talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto about the widespread economic hurt from no football. So many of these college towns have tons and tons of small businesses that are impacted, you know, whether it's local bars, restaurants, hotels, mom and pop shops selling college paraphernalia. Uh, They are all hit really hard by this. And, uh, you know, throughout the Big Ten and the uh, the Pac-12, you know, I think you're going to see a lot of that happening. Uh, It's putting added pressure on an already difficult situation. I mean, you've already got you know, an economy that has double-digit unemployment. you got 30 million people still receiving unemployment benefits. you got a lot of people out there that are really struggling. It's already a tough retail environment. We saw earnings down 60% for retailers in the first quarter. They're expected to be down another 34%. And the second quarter rolls out this week and next, and another down another 15 in the third quarter. So there are some serious ripple effects. You have a lot of sportswear companies, that, whether it's hats, jerseys, shirts, whatever it is, they make a lot of money off of this. And it would, it would be understandable that some of the enthusiasm to purchase those things would be down if the teams aren't playing. Yeah, especially for those that aren't playing. But even, you know, even with those that are playing, if you've got uh, stadiums that are empty or you've got you know, limited the capacity because of social distancing, uh, you know, the, the fervor just isn't there. You know, you don't have people uh, visiting campuses, going to the bookstores, moms and dads buying tons of paraphernalia as well. Uh, you know, the, the, the brands like Under Armour, Nike, Adidas are all losing money because they're not getting exposure on TV in the Pac-12. And, you know, those brand logos are very prominent on their cleats and particularly on their jerseys. And, you know, there's a lot, lot of money involved in, in that exposure. So, uh you know, it, it has an effect that's pretty widespread. Yeah, I didn't think about the exposure being not only about the football, but if you have a team that's really good and they're on TV all the time, that naturally helps recruit students to your school. Absolutely. You know, it, it ripples down through a lot of tears here. And, and, you know, not seeing those brands on TV is a big deal. And a lot of these brands, you know, Under Armour, excuse me, Under Armour has a, a you know, $280 million deal that they signed with UCLA for 15 years, you know, to, to provide all their, their gear to them. And they're not going to be on TV at all this year, not playing. You know, we, we'll see about the spring. You know, Nike and Adidas have similar deals with all kinds of colleges, you know. So there's a lot of that money that's tied up, and that's not going to be bearing any fruit, uh, you know, with these conferences not playing. Is it a little too early to tell? You have NHL, NBA, you have Major League Baseball playing with no fans in the stands. Uh, whether or not that's having the the same benefit or is it just different if there's no fans there yeah it's interesting i think college football in particular is such a fan-based you know event driven experience where there's a ton of merchandise sold on game day and throughout the season uh, on these campuses and through alumni because of the fervor that's created so i think it's going to have a more broader impact on college football than it might for some of the pro teams that are on tv you know you're still going to see a lot of Sales being conducted, uh, you know, for you know, fans of professional teams uh, you know, buying merchandise online uh, that they can do re- fairly readily. So I think it's going to have more of an impact on the college side. Yeah, good insight. Thank you. That's Ken Perkins. He's a research analyst at Retail Metrics in Massachusetts. One of the big concerns doctors and lawmakers had when the pandemic started was how the virus would impact homeless people. 
There was a lot of concern it would rampage through homeless populations here in Los Angeles and other big cities and decimate them with death and extreme illness. But it's turning out that it hasn't impacted homeless people as hard as once feared. More than 200 of an estimated 8,000 homeless people in San Francisco have tested positive for the virus, but half came from an outbreak at a homeless shelter in April. Only one homeless person in the city has died from the virus. Researchers, well, they're not sure what to make of it. One idea is that maybe being outside has put many of the homeless at lower risk. We'll be back tomorrow. You can listen to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. 